1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Chris Patterson, the co-host of the network, and my guest today is Dr. Dean Itsuji Serenio, who is an associate professor of Asian Pacific and American Studies in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University. We'll discuss his book, Unsustainable Empire, Alternative Histories of Hawaii Statehood, which was published by Duke University Press in 2018. Dr. Serenio, thank you so much for joining us today. How is it going? Oh, everything's
0: uh, going good. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm very excited about this podcast, (laughs) so can you um, just begin by telling us a bit about yourself?
0: I uh, grew up in Hawaii, uh, grew up on the island of Maui, um, and I'm four generations in Hawaii, so my um, great grandparents Traveled from Fukushima, uh, Japan in 1895, uh, to labor on the plantations, and then on um, my Filipino side of my family, uh, traveled from Bajan Cebu in the Philippines um, in um, 1919. And uh, grew up in Hawaii, grew up on Maui. Um, It wasn't until I went to the University of Hawaii at Manoa and majored in ethnic studies that I started to actually learn about Hawai'i's indigenous history, Kanaka Mali history. And um, while I was um, an undergraduate there and also um, working part-time at a hotel in Waikiki as a a valet, um, um, I mean, of course, coupled with like student organizing and whatnot, but I I just sort of, um, I guess I became more aware of just how important it is to understand Hawai'i's history um, through um, Kanaka Maoli perspectives. And as an ethnic studies major, it was sort of one of those things where, you know, I would take courses um, on the Japanese in Hawai'i, Filipinos in Hawai'i, Chinese in Hawai'i, etc. And a lot of the courses really positioned Um, injustice as a form of exclusion from the United States. But when I started taking classes at the Center for Hawaiian Studies with Hanani K. Trask, um, it really wasn't exclusion from the United States. The the injustice was the fact that Hawaii was forcefully made a part of the United States, and that Hawaiians who themselves resisted being a part of the United States are now not just um, living on their occupation, but having to really mediate a whole list of injustices, whether we're talking about, you know, um, these big um, biotech farms that are um, doing pesticide and herbicide testing in the islands or live fire military training as it takes place in Pua but, you know, in the past has taken place um, at the island of Ko'olawe and um, Makua. And and I know you know this, this history really well. And, yeah, so I guess it was just sort of taking those, courses and and then working as a valet and and sort of seeing firsthand just how dependent the tourism industry is on a specific representation of Hawai'i and a specific representation of Hawai'ians, um, while at the same time um, it sort of functions um, to obscure all of those kinds of intense violences. And, and so um, from there I, I um, I went to UCLA and I got an M.A. in Asian American Studies and took a lot of Native American history courses and then went to University of Michigan where I studied with Vince Diaz and then um, I guess how I started um, this particular project was um, when I first uh, went to University of Michigan, my research topic was trying to look at Filipinos in Hawaii in relationship to um, Native Hawaiians. But specifically, the ways in which they share, um, you know, U.S. colonization around the same time, and also resistance against uh, that that colonization. And I was trying to think about that particular formation of of, of Filipino American, um, and the ways in which we can sort of be maneuvered um, to unknowingly support occupation, whether it's. You know, in the ways that I earlier described earlier, the way in which we describe our injustice as being sort of marginalized from the United States. Um, But when I started doing research in the archives, um, I started finding more and more interesting things about statehood. And, you know, I think I was really trying to look at the process of Americanization. And you can really see that in the statehood movement because you have these specific propaganda commissions whose, entire responsibilities, they were specifically charged with um, normalizing the United States in Hawaii to the extent that statehood was seen as the inevitable um, sort of um, option for Hawaii's alleged decolonization, right? Yeah,
1: and I um, admire this, because you mentioned this history in the preface and in the introduction, um, also mentioning how you, you were I don't don't know if you want to say radicalized, but how a lot of your politics was shaped through working in the tourist industry, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I experienced as well. Um, A lot of my family is from Hawaii, but I um, grew up in Portland and then we moved to Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until working in the tourist industry in Las Vegas, which is sometimes called the Ninth Island, right, right. (laughs) Um, that really shapes your politics <laughs> in an mm-hmm. in interesting way when you're kind of like a brown person serving all white people and then mm-hmm. suddenly you're faced with like all of this racialization mm-hmm. and all of this pr- demand to perform a certain way mm-hmm. um, that I think is very crucial for our, I guess our own scholarship later on. Right, um, right. But you also mentioned your um, own organization, uh, organizing practices and uh, actions in, uh, in 2009 I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, And the cover of your book um, is interesting um, entryway into the book as it it's it's a photograph um, of um, of these Hawaiian flags or the these independence flags and then the and banners and then um, military jets overhead. Uh Um, And it tells not only a story of U.S. empire, but resistance to it um, through this personal experience you had as an organizer. So could you tell us a bit about that and how that um, worked its way into the book?
0: Yeah, so, um, so we had organized uh, We organized uh, an action in March of 2009 um, at the state capitol because the state of Hawaii was going to have their statehood celebration and they had $500,000 at their disposal. So they had a, a Hawaii statehood commission essentially, which is kind of ironic because that's sort of how I organized the chapters of the book is through these propaganda commissions, and which includes one that was actually named the Hawaii State of Commission. But the State of Commission was really trying to celebrate statehood and, and to commemorate it as a kind of civil rights victory. And so that day, there was a rule that um, they weren't going to allow anyone to hold signs um, at the state capitol. <clears throat> and so... Um, what we ended up doing was we turned our bodies into signs, and so we wore black shirts with green letters that spelled out um, "History of Theft, uh, Fake State." So everyone wore one letter, right? And um, and we showed up <coughs> to the Capitol. And um, Lynette Cruz, who's was, who's was one of the main organizers, she's also I'm sure you know like one of uh, a really well-respected organizer in, in Hawaii around the occupation and. Um, you know, she asked me to carry the uh, Hawaiian independence banners. And they're these really tall, I think they're probably like maybe 12 feet high. One banner is black, and it says Hawaiian, and the other banner is red, and it says independence. But it's also shaped to look like um, uh, the image of Lono during Makahiki Festival, which is really a time of um, prosperity and peace. And the um, artist who did these banners uh, is a Hawaiian um, artist named Donna Burns, who um, is sort of prolific in, in Hawaii. She, you know, so like if anybody is familiar with um, uh, Local Motion Software, she's one of the people who actually designed um, that pretty prominent image. And so Lynette asked me to carry that. Banner into the Capitol. but we all expected you know security to stop us um, and so a security guard came up to me and he was gonna um, he' was, you know telling me that he I can't have this this sign in in the building um, in in the capitol, and you know he was um, actually a lot older than myself, and um, Lynette was sort of um telling me that she wanted to take pictures of the moment when, you know, the, the security guard would stop me. So I was supposed to try to instigate a, a, a moment, but I, I don't really have that energy. Like, that's not really, it's not really who I am. Like I'm And, not and really... he's
1: also like an elder person yeah, exactly. Like that has much more uh, connotations to it. right? Than, yeah.
0: Yeah. I felt yeah. rude. Like it felt like he was an uncle, you know, like it, yeah. it felt like, you know, it's his job. Like it's not like he's the governor of the state or it's not like he made the rule, you know? And so if anything, I felt, in affinity with this with this man um with the uncle and um so eventually he kind of lets me go lets me go through and then i looked to Lynette and asked and was just kind of wondering if she had a thought was able to get a good picture and she just kind of laughed at me and then we um made it through the Capitol, and we started holding signs um on Baratania street which is the you know the main street that's um heading westward on uh in front of the Capitol, and people were honking their horns in solidarity with us and then we're walking back to the capitol, and then um, the uncle who's working security, he stops me, and he speaks in pidgin, and he, he says, um, hey, if you like one good picture, um, try to put your guys' banners in the state capitol when the jets fly over. So he told me when the the military flyover was supposed to take place, and then I notified um, not just our um, media folks, um, we had like a bunch of folks who were, who were taking pictures, but also, um, Told you know the um, the other media folks, um, the Honolulu Star Bulletin and the Honolulu Advertiser at the time, and so um, we were able to get a, a photo of from inside the state capitol, and it's an open air rotunda. And then when a the military jet f- jet flew over, it stucks the poles next to these banners that say Hawaiian Independence. Um, our photo is the photo that I used on the cover of my book, and. Um, the other journalists used their photo, and it was actually on the front page of the of the um, of the Honolulu Star Bulletin. Which, um, you know, if anybody um, knows the history of the Honolulu Star Bulletin, the 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 main newspapers, the Honolulu Star Bulletin, Honolulu Advertiser, those two newspapers were played central roles in sort of normalizing um, statehood and really trying to like hype. Hyped statehood up as as being to the benefit of all people, and the fact that they were um, looking at statehood 50 years um, back, and the cover of their newspaper was had had the the banners Hawaiian independence. I think was was something that um, that is it's at least archived in, in in the official record, and will always be archived archived in that. So that at least there's there's a record um, of. Our protests of that moment and trying to trying to keep alive um, that history of opposition to
1: statehood. Mm-hmm. I, I love that story because it, it kind of encapsulates for me a lot of the stories that I've told throughout the book, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of about the nitty gritty of like of pro- of politics and mm-hmm. direct action. Um, you know, wanting to have a confrontational image to kind of send to the media, but then instead getting a kind of ally. Mm-hmm offers a different kind of image that actually works um that's actually more complex and works towards more towards the structures that you're trying to think about and so Mm -hmm. i feel like the book is kind of chock full of those moments um that really make us kind of rethink um identity and settler colonialism Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's i I love that moment Mm -hmm. um there's been uh i wanted to also get to the um the protests at Mauna Kea um, mm-hmm. because that's been going on uh, very recently and I know that mm-hmm. um, you and many organizers and artists that we know um, have been participating in these uh, direct actions protesting the observatories, the TMT, the 30-meter telescope um, mm-hmm. being built atop um, Mauna Kea, Hawaii's tallest mountain. So mm-hmm. Can you tell us um, about these demonstrations and how they relate to the ideas in your book or how they might manifest new ones?
0: Yeah. So. Um... So the protest, um, or, you know, a lot of folks are uh, talking about it less as, um, you know, describing themselves as protesters and more as protectors. Mauna Kea is the, you know, one of the tallest mountains in the world. If you look at it um, from, you know, where it starts under the ocean, Mm -hmm. then it's considered the, the tallest mountain in the world. But it also plays a central role in the hydrology of the island. And so the specific way that, Hawaiians are being cast in the the debate between those who are proponents of the 30 meter telescope and those who are opposed to it is that it's this idea of like culture like Hawaiian culture and and like kind of like Hawaiian superstition versus science but Hawaiians themselves have a deep understanding of the hydrology of the islands and so because it's one of the the tallest um mountains, it is the tallest mountain in, in, in Hawaii. Um, it plays a pivotal role in the hydrology of the island. And so, you know, all of the water or, or the majority of the water and the majority of the aquifers are themselves recharged and, and replenished from um, Mauna Kea. But they were they constructed these these telescopes and you know a lot of times in order for them to 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 construct the third the telescopes um, they needed to actually um, you know, there was one instance where they used dynamite. There's, there, they would just kind of level the pools like level the different hills, um, and that is itself a kind of desecration. Um, not to mention that it's also kind of tampering with a particular area that um, the rest of the island and the ecologies of the island all kind of rely upon. And so it's, it's a, it's a serious struggle. And um, you no, know, I was really um, fortunate. That I was able to go, you know, with my sister uh, Candice Fujikane, who's um, worked on this topic, on this issue, um, and trying to trying to block the Thirty Meter Telescope for a long time. So, you know, we were uh, on La and we were able to help establish um, what's called uh Puhonua or Pu'u So, uh Puhonua is itself a Hawaiian term for a place of refuge, um, and in pre-contact times. Puhonuas were themselves established as a place of refuge. So if you broke the law or if you, you know, did any kind of like transgression, you could, you could escape to a particular place where you would be safe. And so um, Ko'okahi Kanuha was one of the organizers and did a lot of research around how to like, what is the cultural protocol for designating a place um, as a refuge, as a Pu'ohonua. And so he did a lot of this research, but you know, the, the impetus behind establishing the Pu'ohonua was Um, during a moment of escalating settler violence, you know, there were like um, talks that, you know, the the state had in fact bought an LRAD system, which is um, uh, you know, it's sometimes described as a kind of sound cannon, and it was used during um, Standing Rock. Um, But it emits such a a loud sound that it it actually like um, ends up causing nausea, and it ends up, you know, it's like, it's a... um, Mm it's a it's a way of kind of um breaking up large crowds, and on top of that we also you know in the newspapers they were reporting that they were gonna you know bring um, tear gas and and the national guard was there we we knew even just from people who were catching flights to Hawaii Island you know people were on the plane with with police officers right so like you know the Honolulu Police Department the Maui Police Department they were all traveling to Hawaii Island and so we knew that they were coming with um with police um, and military force. And we were fortunate that we didn't get swept when we established the Puhonua. And then on the day that they said they were going to bring up the, the, um, the machinery or they were going to start construction is the day when there were essentially three three lines. Um, you know, one line to kind of like stall the, the police. The second line was a, a line of kupuna or elders they blocked the road and then behind them there's a cattle gate, um, I believe it was seven people, um, they chained themselves actually to the cattle gate. Fortunately, through just really brilliant organizing and strategizing by the by the leaders of, of those who are protecting Mauna Kea, um, they have been able to um, block the construction of the 30 meter telescope I think there were, I can't remember the exact number of Kupuno who were arrested. There's like 30 plus Kupuno who were arrested. And then the Wahine made their line, and there were like hundreds of of women who were in that line. And then there were hundreds of men in the other line afterwards. And so I think there were just too many people for the police to arrest. And, you know, they ended up backing off. And when they were going to arrest the Wahine, you know, there was like a long stall, like a a long period where where we were just kind of waiting. for, to see what the police were going to do, you know, and, you know, we were hearing reports that they had brought out the LRAD, we all had earplugs, you know, we all had, um, we had face masks, we had eyewear, we were we were really ready for them to use um, violence to clear the road, but then we heard that people were blocking the freeway on the island of Oahu, so they were mm. blocking the H1 freeway by the airport, um, and, we heard that they were blocking it, and then we heard that they slowed it down, and then we were getting reports. and I don't know if, and I was never able to ver- verify whether it was true, but I heard that um, we were getting other pictures of people who were blocking um, um, on the island of Maui, in Lahaina Front Street, which is like a kind of main, you know, not not identical to Waikiki, but it's like a specifically kind of tourist area, and that. Um, People were also going to block, mm. um, slow down traffic at the Kali Airport. So I think it was just there was just mass resistance, like mm. a critical mass of people who were watching the kupuna get arrested. And as soon as they saw that, they mobilized. And I think honestly, they that mobilization is what kept the group who are blocking the access road from getting arrested that day. And it's it's also why the issue is still um, ongoing right like it's it's mm. like the the governor is not backing down the university of hawaii president is not backing down but neither are the kupuna the kupuna are still on the road there's like there's actually like university classes that are being offered because there are so many amazing teachers whether it's like kumohula like uh, hula teachers or actual you know like or people who are in education anyway there's like actual classes that are being offered you know, food is being organized. Um, everything is just organized. and it it really reminds me so much of um, you know, whether it's like Latin America and the, the kind of autonomous zones or you know at Standing Rock in particular. And there's like a lot of people who were at Standing Rock. but um, a lot of the organizers were at Standing rock um, and and were um, were camped out there and thus learned a lot of things and and thus applied them to the situation in Hawaii. And okay. so. It's an ongoing issue, it's an intense issue, but I think it's also mobilizing Hawaii in a way that I've never seen Hawaii mobilized. Um, I've never seen a critical mass of people so united against a 30 meter telescope, but also sort of inspired in doing something that protects the aina, like protects the land, right? Like that actually Mm -hmm. protects the mauna. And I think that way of relating to land relating to Hawaii, not as real estate or not as simply a kind of platform for a, for a telescope, you know, it's like, um, it's really inspiring. And it's just like, it, it kind of says a lot about our moment where like, I feel like settler colonialism has all of this intelligence to like peer into the universe, but it lacks any wisdom, mm. lacks any wisdom in terms of how to actually sustain life on the planet, or how to sustain life on the Island. And so you really see that kind of, um, Unsustainability.
1: It's very fascinating, and you—it's interesting reading your book um, in light of what's been going on because you do mention the third 30-meter telescope. You do mention a lot of these actions on Mauna Kea, mm-hmm. um, and like we said, there's a long history to it. Like it's been going on for quite a long time with numerous telescopes, um, and just from following it from afar, I've only seen that kind of reiteration of what you said in the beginning which is the kind of culture versus science Mm -hmm. argument um and as you point out too in your book throughout your book uh that's been kind of mainstay of how a lot of power has functioned how southern colonial structures have remained Mm -hmm. um but what's also shocking about it to me was how um the kind of all the, so many different groups have been batting together um, for this. Whereas before it was kind of seen as, oh, that's just like an indigenous issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then, but then there would be the expectation too, that indigenous people would show up for all the other, you know, the Mm -hmm. the kind of anti-racist events or liberal multicultural um, uh, events. And so it's, it's fascinating now to kind of see this, the shift that Mm -hmm. people aren't really buying this, Civilization, this culture versus science narrative, so much mm-hmm. anymore. And mm-hmm. like you said, I think it it also speaks to um, what we can do as educators,
0: mm-hmm. right,
1: that we can have these moments in our classes and get students more interested in um, non and native or non settler epistemologies or ways of seeing, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. ways of seeing land. And so that's it's been fascinating, kind of reading your book mm-hmm. while reading about what's going on um, from where I am from Vancouver, mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: but we should, I, this also leads me to your main concept in your book, um, because one of the other components to that is this idea that the science or the progress or the empire is this unstoppable, increasingly strong, impossible to resist thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas you, the argument that you make in the book is quite the opposite or quite different from that. Um, and so I wanted to take that us there. Uh, so the main concept in the title, at least, is unsustainable empire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw you give a talk on this at uh, the Association of Asian American Studies conference this year. Um, and so I'm just going to read from what I remember was in that talk, but was in, on page nine of your book, uh, where you just give like this amazing... Um, overview of it. And so you say, quote, in Sustainable Empires, the book, I argue that U.S. imperialist ventures in Hawaii were not the result of a strong nation swallowing a weak and feeble island nation, but rather a result of a weakening U.S. nation whose mode of production, capitalism, was increasingly unsustainable without enacting a more aggressive policy of imperialism. If we think of forms of white supremacy, such as settler colonialism and capitalism, as emerging from positions of weakness, not strength, we can gain a more accurate understanding of how the U.S. came to occupy Hawaii. As such, Southern <clears> colonialism <throat> falls forward uh, into its various imperial formations, including what is intimately known as statehood. So that paragraph for me still resonates so heavily. Um, but can you expand on that on that point for us in that title?
0: Yeah. So um, so when I was doing research and looking at I knew I needed to look at 1893, which is sort of, you know, the the year the Hawaiian nation, the independent Hawaiian nation. And and for folks who don't know, you know, Hawaii was itself an internationally recognized nation. And, you know, it had delegates um, around the world, uh, foreign delegates around the world. It had treaties with essentially every um, nation that traversed the Pacific. um, And so it was a thriving nation and it had a, a, a high literacy rate. I you know, I was, I've was i been told that it, the literacy rate was actually higher in Hawaii than it was in the United States. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other scholars who do sim- make similar moves, like especially about the Pacific. You know, like I think uh, I'm thinking about um, Epele Ha'ofa's work in um, mm. R.C. of Islands, right? That kind of a the seminal article, Epele Ha'ofa is making the argument that the ways in which the Pacific is sort of viewed... Um, is oftentimes as these tiny little islands in this big ocean but you know he makes the argument that the ocean is itself not something that separates folks but actually connects people and when you view Hawaiian or Pacific um, stories the way in which they're describing their worlds is huge like they're describing the the vast Pacific and the ways in which they traverse the Pacific or they're describing their relationships to huge constellations or, you know, what exists under the ocean. So their view of the world is not limited to tiny little islands that are bordered by the ocean, right? Their, their view of space is itself so much more capacious. And he's making that argument specifically in order to challenge or counter ideas that paint the Pacific as always going to be in positions of subordination and dependence. Right. That like because, you know, continents are so large, the continents always have to be in a position of um, supremacy over the archipelagos. Right. And so like that kind of way of uh, thinking about the the Pacific, I I thought was really um, instructive. And just looking at the archive for me was really um, important because every... Almost every year when there is a um, propaganda commission that is established, so the Hawaiian Bureau of Information is is one propaganda commission that came out in 1893. And the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom is not this moment where Hawaiians are disorganized, it's not a moment where Hawaiians are are themselves um, either passive or um, inept it's actually a moment when they're increasing their voice and their control of their government. And that is what places white settler colonialism under threat, and that is why, and that coupled with the economic depression that's taking place in the 1890s, right? So like one of the main things that I'm trying to ask, especially in that first chapter is like, how is it that they were celebrating white supremacy globally? Like the Colombian exposition is nicknamed the white city. Um, and the the landscape, the way that the the um, exposition is spatially organized tells a story about kind of um, progress as always leading towards whiteness. Um, how is it that they were able to celebrate? You know, what is essentially white supremacy um, in a moment when its economy was under like potential collapse and. Walter Gresham, who was, I think, Secretary of State at the time, says that, you know, um, what he's noticing is that there's so many um, strikes and, and 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 so much mobilization on the part of labor that he felt that that moment was actually more sympto- symptomatic of revolution, right? Mm. And so, you know, what he's doing um, in... And in relation to like the Harrison administration is that they're viewing Hawaii, the Philippines, Guam, they're they're sort of like viewing you know viewing these places as sort of stepping stones to markets in Asia, right? Um, and so that's essentially what leads to the Harrison administration supporting. Um, those who were involved in the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom and supported um, the U.S. foreign minister to land U.S. Marines to help kind of bring that project of of occupation to fruition. And um, if we talk about it as as the United States is having their shit together, and that's why they were able to colonize Hawaii, then we actually don't see that it's actually a, you know to a certain extent a, a kind of mo- moment of desperation, and they needed Hawaii more than Hawaii needed them. Mm. You know, and or what more than Hawaiians needed them. And, and the sugar planters in Hawaii needed, um, you know, were themselves impacted by the economic depression taking place in the United States because um, the United States um, Congress ends up passing the McKinney tariffs, which end up actually coming at the expense or striking at these profitable tariffs that allowed sugar in Hawaii to have a competitive edge in selling sugar to. To the United States, right? And so, all of these things are kind of at play. And even if you look at like Hawaii's actual the annexation of Hawaii to the United States, you know they weren't able to get the two thirds required vote in Congress to support annexation. So, you know they couldn't annex Hawaii fairly. So they simply um, were willing to like to fudge the process. So they basically annexed Hawaii through joint resolution, which where people. Um, aware of what a joint resolution is, it's just fifty percent or more of, of Congress who support that, and it has no actual binding. The nineteen ninety three apology to Hawaiians for the for the U S. Part- for the U S. involvement in the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom was itself a joint resolution, right? It's an apology, like there. But there's no actual, um, like there it there has no legal teeth. But that's how they annexed Hawaii, or, or mm-hmm. allegedly annexed Hawaii, and so it's this kind of like you know, it's this sort of fell forward process that I think. You know, the, so the 1890s is like this one other kind of economic depression, and then 1930s is this other economic depression, and that's really the moment of statehood, you know, like when there, there was a genuine movement for statehood, and then in the post-war moment, the reason why they started sort of pushing for statehood in the post-war moment is is that they want to build the infrastructure for tourism, but because of um, World War II and, and Hawaii being placed under martial law, because Hawaii is itself a U.S. territory, not a state, <clears throat> a lot of stateside lenders you know, like banks and insurance companies viewed Hawaii as an offshore investment. And so they needed statehood in order to get that kind of investment capital in order to kind of profit off of tourism. Right. And so there's all of these kinds of ways of looking at the at the economy and it tells a different story mm. than those who are actually campaigning for statehood. Like when they're campaigning for statehood, it's oftentimes about, you know, kind of battling the racism of Congress or there or they're, or there's like talks about, you know, not wanting Hawaii people to be second class citizens and all these kinds of like developmental type, you know, discursive formations. But um when you look at the the money, it's a different story. And I think not only is like I kind of making the case like not only is capitalism unsustainable as as an economic system, but we're sort of reaching this point where the environment cannot sustain this way of living. So like that, you know, whether we're looking at climate crisis um, in the form of like rising sea sea levels or non-human extinctions or, you know, like water crises, which is a big issue in Hawaii. Um, You know, there's like a a way in which um, this way of organizing society is not only unsustainable, but it's also sort of alienating and not, Mm really joyful either I right? like there's mm. you know like I, I think there's just so much you I know mean, I think that's also why Monacare um, is really uniting people and 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 inspiring people because it's a different way of living your life that is not solely organized around economic rationale and is also around organized around one's genealogy and one's relation to place mm-hmm. and you know like I I think um you know, like Leanne Simpson's work is really um, is really powerful around her work around the indigenous resurgence and you know in, in her native language she asked her elder what is the opposite of dispossession like what is the word for opposite the opposite of dispossession and so like her elder says that like, the opposite of dispossession isn't possession the opposite of disp- dispossession is connection in her language right so like mm. how do you actually start to organize or reorganize or um, or create something anew Via decolonization, in a manner that doesn't replicate the logics of occupation, that doesn't repl- replicate the logics of, of capitalism, and in the Hawaiian language and in Hawaiian worldviews, and like in a lot of a lot of indigenous worldviews, these are languages and ways of thinking that precede property. And so, you know, as an example, like the word for water in Hawaiian is vai, and the word for um, wealth is vai vai. And so that kind of tells us that a healthy economy is not limited to you know GDP, but is also but is actually organized around biodiversity. Like the the health of an economy is is based, can should be based around whether how life is actually flourishing in a particular place. And Vandana Shiva has this really beautiful argument that she says that, you know, economic development is itself anti-life in this moment because Mm economic development actually hides the poverty it creates through the destruction of resources that people need to feed themselves or the destruction of resources that people need to sustain life on the planet and the more and more economic development that takes place the more alienated people become from these particular ways of living and the more minimal these kinds of ecologies are and so like the health of particular places is becoming more and more like a central concern and, and like in the Hawaiian, the word for patriotism, I mean it doesn't really translate as patriotism. No Silva has this really beautiful moment in her first book, Aloha Betrayed, where she looks at the word aloha aina, but she says it's not really it translates as patriotism, but it's really um aloha for the land, like aloha for for yeah. that which sustains life, right? Or I've heard other people describe aina as, as that which feeds, like land is that which feeds us. it's not property, it's not real estate, it's not land that will help you to create profit. It's actually Land that helps you to connect to to life, and so I think it's my long winded way of kind of saying I think like that's you know really where what I was trying to get at.
1: Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, you said that the book uh, began as a dissertation project uh, about Filipinos, um, Filipino activism or alliance activism in in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So there, I mean, there's still like remnants of that there, mm. uh, but I find. This issue is very interesting and a bit thorny in like Asian-American studies about how to think about um, Asians or other minority groups within the structure of Southern colonialism, which is mm-hmm. a, an issue that you take up right in the introduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, mm-hmm. folks like Aiko Day, Jody Bird have come up with interesting ways of seeing this um, as Asian migrants or other minorities, um, seeing them as aliens, arrivants, arrivant settlers, and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, yourself also having this Asian migrant background and myself also having Mm -hmm. Asian migrant background from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, we're also kind of old school, I guess, like four generations, four or five generations. And Mm so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of mixture that's gone on. Mm -hmm. um, A lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, different, uh, yeah, just a lot of Different kind of racial heritages uh-huh. um, to kind of be assigned to or to speak for. Uh-huh. Um, but so it's fascinating how things have started to change again um, with the Monarchia uh, demonstrations, but also it's still a kind of issue, right? And I'm, I'm uh-huh. wondering how you um, uh, how you deal with this these complex relationships with identities throughout the book. Um, in the uh-huh. beginning, you kind of outline them. Um, as being more about what you do than what you are, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a point that I I really like how simply you put it, but I'm sure, but um, can you speak a bit to that and how you practice that um, in your book and in your activism?
0: Yeah, I mean, I sort of, I struggle with it still. Um, To me, the term settler is itself uncomfortable. It's... um, it's a, it's a term, like you said, it's thorny, right? And I think that's really the purpose of it. So like, you, so like, you know, like, as you know, in, in Hawaii, when I grew up, when I was, I, was, I was growing up in Hawaii, I, you know, not being Hawaiian, but not being Hawaii, not being white and speaking pidgin and being raised in Kahului, which is essentially an area where a lot of the plantation families moved to after leaving the racially segregated plantation camps. So we all spoke pidgin and we all had this kind of animosity towards white supremacy, towards, you know, towards systems of exploitation and and all of these things. And we really intensely identified ourselves as local. Um, And other folks, you know, also identified themselves as American. And so I believe it was 2000, how Nanike Trask, in that article, Settlers of Color and Immigrant Hegemony, which is an article that is published in the Amerasia Journal in 2000, and then it's republished in the anthology edited by Candice Fujikane and Jonathan Okamura. Um, I think it's called Asian Settler Colonialism in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, the article that she publishes is is being published in a moment where Hawaiian what few Hawaiian entitlements remain after the overthrow are under attack,
1: mm.
0: right? And so, you know, Rice versus Kayotano in 2000, um, and then the subsequent um, lawsuits that that targeted Hawaiian homelands, Hawaiian gathering rights—all of these things are under attack. So this is what Hōnani Kei is is up against, right? Like that—that that I feel like is is really important. There's this kind of multicultural way of thinking about Hawaii that doesn't view Hawaiians as indigenous peoples or as, or as a people who have a separate history from the other groups in Hawaii. And I think the word settler of color for her was itself a kind of, like she would describe the term settler as a, as a kind of sledgehammer. Mm. Right? Like it's, 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 it's being used as a means of dismantling paradigms or these like what I think as like, of, like, these paradigms of thought that are tied to these subject positions of local and American, and the structures of feeling that make us feel justified in, in identifying ourselves in these ways without actually thinking about the colonial implications of these things. So, as an example, Ronald Takaki is actually one of the first to describe Asians in Hawaii as settlers. And he does this both in um, the seminal book *Pauhana*, which is the the book on um, plantation histories in Hawaii, and then does it again in *Strangers*, um, *Strangers from a Different Shore*. And you know, I want to say that like Ron Takaki's work was actually one of the main reasons why I was interested in Asian American history, and it really inspired me to kind of do the work that I do. Um, but there's a moment in his book where he's trying to combat the idea that Asian Americans, um, both on the continent in Hawaii are sojourners, that they only mm-hmm. came here for a little one and, and that they eventually plan to go back. And so he says instead, they're not sojourners, they're settlers without actually questioning the implications of that term, right? Mm-hmm. And so like that is sort of to me where the argument of, of Asian settler colonialism comes from, both in terms of the landscape of these different lawsuits and then the kind of existent literatures about Asians in Hawaii. And so when we look at things in that way, I think there's like an an understanding that um, the term settler is meant to really sort of chide non-Hawaiian, non-white groups and kind of push at the idea that we are not Complicit in Hawaiian dispossession that we have not benefited from Hawaiian dispossession, mm-hmm. and it's really about trying to get us to divest from an American political system, and to actually take the the charge of occupation, um, you know, to take up that that issue, and to try to figure out how how we how we are situated in that. And I think the the, the challenge always is like, well, how do you describe people who are themselves? Um, Discriminate against. So like whether we're talking about Filipinos um, or other non-white groups, like how do we, how do you talk about them as, as settlers? And like the word settler or settler colonialism always has been about people who are simultaneously dispossessed at the same time that they're involved in dispossess- dispossessing other folks. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's never, it's not a formation of power that is simply the settler is a person who dispossesses native people processes of settler colonialism, or or settlers are themselves first initially displaced from wherever they're from. And that dispossession, um, you know, like it creates a kind of situation where, um, I I can't recall the the person who I cite, but, you know, she makes this really beautiful argument that, um, you know, settler colonialism essentially creates a situation where you do unto others as has been done unto you, Mm. you know, and, um, and I think, well, it's been helpful for me in terms of like trying to like really figure out how to think about, you know, how do you talk to people who are themselves also sort of suffering and also oppressed and how do you get them to or, or how do you how do you make sense of calling them settlers? Um, And Grace Lee Boggs was really important in terms of just like her own work. And, you know, there's this moment where she's kind of talking about the 60s and 70s and she says, when it's kind of remembered, um, it seem, it's seemingly always about like black empowerment. But as a person who actually lived and organized in these decades, she said it wasn't just about empowerment. It was, it was also about, you know, she says, it was less about like how people talk about it today, like the kind of oppressed masses, right? She said it was also about recognizing these communities as, as empowered communities capable of making moral choices. That's where that's what I'm interested in. Like I'm not interested in talking about Filipinos as the oppressed masses. I think there's a lot of organizing, like the like decolonial Pinais is like a, another group. There's a lot of like Filipinos who are in graduate school who are, you know, who are trying to unpack and, and study and elaborate on settler colonialism in Hawaii, but are not shying away from identifying themselves as settlers. But not identifying themselves as settlers in a way that is simply like, oh, I've identified myself as a settler, therefore I'm done with the work, right? Yeah. I think
1: what
0: I think that the concern that I have with with, and I'm not I'm not at all like against other terms, right? Like, but sometimes I, well, the way that I see other terms invoked is that, um, you know, it's a way of sort of um, marking oneself as innocent, right? Like, I am not a settler. I'm there for something else, and therefore I don't, have to, I don't have to even question my involvement in settler colonialism. And I would also say that I think the move has sort of shifted, and, and I think my book is a part of that, is that a lot of us are not using settler colonialism simply to kind of like bog people down by questions of complicity. Right? like I think complicity was really important, especially in the early 2000s when you have Rice versus Cayetano taking place, when you have this dominant ideology of Hawaii being this kind of utopic multicultural place, and non-Hawaiians, um, you know, non-white folks are themselves, you know, simply because they're not white, allies to Hawaiians. Um, I think the question of complicity was really important, but I think we've actually moved from not only asking questions of complicity, but now also thinking about what is possible when we work in place-based affinity with indigenous peoples. And um, you know, Candice Fujikane has this um, argument about um, allyship. And I'll just read um, the quote that I really love. So she says, the term settler, quote unquote, roots us in the settler colonialism that we seek to rearticulate so that we never lose sight of those conditions Or our own positionality or the privileges we derive from it. At the same time, however, the term encompasses the imaginative possibilities for collaborative work on AI and land based decolonial nation building, for there is joy too in these practices of growing AI. And AI is the Hawaiian word for sovereignty. It means to stand, but it also means life and breath, right? The best definition I've ever heard about AI is by Skippy Iowane, and he says, um, AI to him is waking up in the morning and deciding whether or not you go to work, mm. right? That you live in an economy of abundance to the extent that you can actually determine for yourself what you want to do for the day. And in a Hawaiian economy, and a Hawaiian um, mode of production, uh, people only had to work 15 to 25 hours per month to feed oneself. Putting, putting Asian histories in conversation with Hawaiian histories is really important. Um, but for myself, i'm I'm um, I identify myself as a settler. I use that term settler in a way that is pedagogical. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I'm not really trying to use the term settler in a way that forces other people who want nothing to do with that term. Like I'm not trying to force people to identify with that term, to use that term, whatever. Like that's what I've chosen to use, and that's the the term that I find to be most useful and and generative. Um, but like you said in the book, I'm less interested in what people call themselves than I am interested in what people actually do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can call yourself a settler and still do settler things, but um, you know, really, like, what are the material things that you are doing with your life that is helping to work in place-based affinity with, with Indigenous peoples who are themselves
1: oftentimes living under conditions of genocide? yeah and I, I love what you said i could also i wanted to use this in my class now <laughs> the uh you can call yourself a settler and still do settler things right mm-hmm. um but i mean that too also kind of uh we should start to get into uh, the chapters in the history that you talk about we've talked around those um for quite a while um but there are a lot of figures uh, people throughout your book who are kind of thrown into these or labeled or stamped as certain identity types or as racist or what have you, um, as ways to kind of counter what they say and what they're doing. And then, so your book in a way kind of just focuses on um, their speeches, their publications, their, you know, what they actually try to do for the movement. And so there's there's a lot of rich um, figures throughout the book who are, who even today people might not want to write about because um, they were speaking for state or against statehood on the grounds of like uh, that we're too, there's too many Asians here, right? So there shouldn't Mm -hmm. be statehood. And so people like that, we wouldn't even want to write about like, they, you know, we just think they, they're not um, interesting enough, but your book actually tries to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so let's kind of get into that. And um, we've talked around, like I said, a lot of these, um, this history so far. So I kind of want to just um, introduce some of the chapters and, and let you at um, some of the parts that you might find we haven't discussed yet, mm-hmm. but uh, your first half of the book seems to deal more with the kind of a context of white supremacy, um, conservatism, um, through the, the annexation of Hawaii, um, and then the 1937 congressional state hearings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then the second half of your book takes more to task the, the voices of liberal multiculturalism that became more prominent after World War II um, and uh, during the Cold War period, and so let's start with the the first half um, about the kind of the legacy of white supremacy that was um, uh, dominant through that time period before um, World War
0: II. Yeah. So I um, so the first chapter is on the. Columbian Exposition in um, 1893 into like the movement for um, annexation and and so it's kind of imagined as this period of tutelage towards eventual like self determination and and self governance. Um, And you can see how statehood was itself seen as coming at the expense of of the big five um, corporations who kind of dominated Hawaii, but then. In the 1930s, you know, whether it's like we're looking at the, the Great Depression that kind of emerges in 1929, or if you're looking at the Wagner Acts, or we're looking at the kind of like mobilization of, of labor. Um, and then, of course, we're if we look at the, the situation in regards to like the Massey case, right? Like, and that's like one of the big things that happens in the 1930s. And that's really this moment where um, Thalia Massey um, in 1931 um, accuses um, five men of raping her. It's later found out that her accusation is itself um, false, but because not only was she white, but she was an aristocratic, that case eventually becomes like this this really big case. And and what happens with that case is that the congressional folks from the U.S. South were calling for Hawaii to be placed. Um, Or to be governed as a military commission, which is very similar to how Guam and Samoa was being governed at that time. And so they're arguing that the white settlers in Hawaii are unfit for self-government, that they don't know what they're doing, and that the fact that these five men who allegedly raped Thalia Massey, that they could um, not be found guilty, um, or as Admiral Yates Sterling kind of called for, that they wouldn't be like outright lynched, mm-hmm. um, they that they found that to be disturbing, right? You have all of these kinds of instances and, and eventually the, the five men are, are found not guilty. Um, eventually one of the men, Joseph Kahawai, is murdered. They murder him and then they're eventually put on trial and they're found guilty and then they're sentenced to, I don't know how many years of um, hard labor. But the governor at the time, ends up um, commuting their sentence to one hour in the governor's office mm-hmm. and then forcing them to leave Hawaii forever. And so that kind of injustice um, obviously didn't sit well. And you know John Rosa writes about this and talks about how that was the sort of beginning of this local formation, this, this kind of local identity that becomes kind of politicized as non-white peoples in Hawaii had to kind of look at each other for protection. Um, And so that's sort of like, I think, the the beginning, but it also points to this moment where that kind of white racial dictatorship, that white racial governmentality, white supremacy is not actually able to capture hegemony in Hawaii anymore. And because of the the labor movement, um, because of these these kinds of injustices, um, you have a lot more opposition. And so the 1937 congressional hearings was sort of, um, a part of that. like the the thirty seven hearings was actually one of those moments where the non non-white community speaks out um courageously um, in opposition to statehood, because of um, the harshness of everyday life in Hawaii, because of mm. how how oppressive and how exploitative, but also how fascist, like they, and I, and that was actually a word that was commonly used to describe dynamics in there. So the um, National Labor Relations Board, you know, actually investigates the situation and they actually come out and describe Hawaii as a picture of fascism because um, those who are in control of the economy are also in control of, of, of laws and politics. And so the combination of the two leaves very little room for any kind of political mobilizing in that moment.
1: Yeah, it was in that emergence of that, of the kind of local identity too that's fascinating <laughs> Yeah, um, in, in the Massey case, um, and how like, even like that, I, f- I remember reading in your book that so- someone even said that like just having an hour, being forced to spend an hour in the governor's office after for killing and beating um, people who were innocent was still too much, right, that that was mm-hmm. still... Uh, not far enough, and that's why it needs to be a state, <laughs> right? And it, it's just like, it's its kind of insane how, that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that um, is very interesting. But then as as soon as you start to broaden that into what's happening after World War Two, um, and then during the Cold War, that starts to become much more complex, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can then listen to the voices of dissent uh, who were against uh, statehood at the time. So can you talk a bit about, this is uh, the second half of your book, uh, where we're more in the context of liberal multiculturalism mm-hmm. um, as working in tandem with white supremacy, mm-hmm. um, uh, also kind of as a way a way of um, its afterlife in a, in a form, mm-hmm. um, and uh, how Hawaii as a racially diverse place shifts mm-hmm. from being a kind of other non-white outsider to the U.S. to becoming attractive um, as a state in service to U.S. Uh, imperial politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think <clears throat> I think that's why, for myself, like, um, and you know, kind of going back to the to the earlier conversation about you know this kind of thorniness of the use of the term settler. Mm-hmm. That's why I I I I think an analysis of settler colonialism always has to be place-based. It's not it's not operating uniformly. Like, I, you know, we can't really kind of equate the way that settler colonialism, even like the kind of multicultural forms of settler colonialism, we can't equate the way it operates in a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco with how it operates in Hawaii, right? Like it's mm-hmm. a it's a very different kind of history. And in the pre-World War II moment you have, you know, and into World War II, like you have, you know, like Moon Ki Jung describes um, American nationalism in these moments as a kind of anti-Japanese nationalism, right? There was like an intense kind of like demonization of the Japanese after world war II and even during world war II, you know and this is kind of familiar to most Asian Americanists but like you know they there was a need to try to figure out how to manage global imperial politics and so in the post-war moment when Japan is no longer a military threat there needed to be this way of of kind of allowing for japan and the united states to kind of work in collaboration again you know not just kind of it wasn't a politics of of elimination per se but oftentimes like a kind of politics that um articulated the civil rights movements with imperial politics imperial ambitions and so Mm. i look at um the film go for broke you know it's essentially like a propaganda film but um it looks at the Japanese who you know fought during World War Two, and there's that kind of work. But then, like the injustice that's being done against Hawaiians um, is itself not visible. Like there isn't a kind of film that is being, um, you know, celebrated that talks about Hawaiian dispossession. You know, and the person who I write about in that chapter and I, and I kind of pair the the kind of like or juxtapose the politics of the of go for broke with is um, a woman named Amos Alice Kamakila Iqabai Campbell, um, one of the main people who speaks out against statehood in the post-war moment but she does it in a way oftentimes that is like you know on on the one hand initially she speaks out like she says in public in the newspaper she says those who are opposed to statehood based on racist reasons those are people who should be um, pitied rather than condemned but then she does this whole other kind of 180 where she's opposed to statehood but she's like anytime she testifies um, in front of congress she's heightening like this kind of like um, yellow peril idea this kind of idea that the japanese are taking over the japanese were involved in the attack on pearl harbor like she's really trying to play up the japanese as a kind of threat and so Now, I don't see her as a kind of like perfect person, like as a perfect hero. Like I'm not really trying to like paint her as like this kind of heroine. But I do think that given her initial stance and then given what she's up against, uh, she's a part of an indigenous population with a numerical minority. And she is opposed to statehood and she is demonized in the media for opposing statehood. Like how does this, per, and, then she, and she's constantly in her testimony saying like there would be more people, more Hawaiians vocalizing their opposition to statehood. But because their employment is dependent on the big five for work, they cannot verbally, publicly oppose statehood because it's so directly in opposition to the interests of, of their employers. So she's in this situation where like, you know, how does she actually block statehood? I think she was being strategic. I think she was playing to the racism of Congress and saying there's too many Japanese. You guys cannot mix data. And it and and it worked. And then in the in the 50s, when you have like the kind of like McCarthy, during the McCarthy era, she's saying there are too many communists in Hawaii. You guys mm, cannot yeah. say to Hawaii. It, there's, you know. And she's playing to the red scare. And so she's, you know, being strategic and and trying to figure out how to do these different things. And and she is trying to get Hawaii placed under a military commission in the post-war moment because she looks at Guam, Guam, she looks at Samoa, and she even traveled to DC and, and, and looked at Native American reservations. So she looked at other populations for whom their citizenship was forced upon them as well. And she's trying to figure out what political structure has worked the best for these populations so that they can keep their land and they're not simply kind of flattened and kind of um, you know targeted for dispossession like to, as took place in, in Hawaii and so she actually tries to work with these other people to try to put Hawaii under a military commission because she thought that it would actually as in the case of Guam allow people to con- allow tomorrow's to and, and this is like in the 1950s so it's you know this is when gov Guam is is first established but she she believed that that military commission allowed them to 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 remain tomorrow um, peoples t- at that time to be in the numerical majority and then in Samoa allow Samoans to protect their lands when you read like other people who write about her she's always dismissed as either you know like a um, a wealthy landowner also because she's a woman like not only historically are people kind of writing her, about her and kind of dismissing her as having any political strategy but at the time Thurston and others are kind of really like demonizing her in, in the papers as a woman who's more emotional than having having any any kind of intellectual capacity, but there's a lot of reason to to understand her as a, as a political thinker.
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the driving forces of the book. I I think is just not is refusing, I guess, to dismiss even, but at the same time trying not making it quite clear that there are no apologies for a lot of the the, the racism, for example, that that emerged during this time. Mm-hmm. Um. It's amazing to kind of read about it. It reminds me so much of some of the um, rhetoric that we were talking about that kind of goes on today. Uh, We have taken up quite a bit of our time, or a lot of time. Um, (laughs) And so I wanted to, um, I was hoping you could end the podcast by um, giving us your thoughts on the afterlife of the book. Where do you see it making impacts in places you might not have expected and Mm -hmm. how the book might lead to new projects that you're working on um, today and in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just grateful that um, like folks like you are, are giving me this opportunity to talk about the book and are, and are interested in, um, in it. And um, I just think there's like a, a whole group of folks who are taking up Asian settler colonialism in Hawaii in these new, exciting and interesting ways um, and doing so not just um, thinking about the politics that takes place in Hawaii, but also um, in places like Guam um, and other other kinds of like settler settler colonial places, and I'm really excited about um, you know a lot of the the folks who are doing doing that kind of. Um, new new work, and I end the book by talking a little bit about um, this pineapple strike that takes place on the island of Lana'i, and uh, in 1951, they're primarily Filipino workers, and they're out on strike, and they decide to go out and go out on strike uh, without the support of the larger union, the territory-wide ILWU union, and ILWU leaders really kind of chastise them and and say like, if you guys think like an 8-day strike is going to is going to do anything you guys are you guys are fooling yourself and he's they're referencing the the strike earlier the, the pineapple strike earlier that only lasted you know I think it was 8 days but what the larger union leaders didn't know was that the Lanai workers had a, had themselves a kind of strategy and in the first meeting the workers end up organizing themselves into these 3 Committees and these three committees were, um, were those folks who knew how to fish, those who knew how to hunt, and those who knew how to plant. And those mm-hmm. three committees were charged with feeding the workers. And the strike ends up lasting not not you know not five days, but instead ends up lasting two hundred and one days. And there was like stories that I heard, you know, because I grew up on Maui, that people on Maui said you could smell the rotting pineapple. Um, across the channel. When I shared this story um, with Luis Francia, my colleague here uh, at NYU, um, he said, you know, I don't know that story about the Lanai workers, but I know that story in the Philippines. And mm. he said, that's a story that um, is very common in the Visayas. And that's where my family and a lot of the, the workers were from. And so there's a way that I think that that anti-colonial strategy against the Spanish end up being replicated on Lanai. I'm interested in looking at that strike and trying to look at um, other strikes that I, so like my mom shared with me um, a strike that her her mother participated in, you know, in the, in the I think in 58, where the kula farmers, the cabbage farmers, fed the workers. Um, mm. And then there's other stories on um, Hawaii Island in Hilo of similar kinds of situations. And so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm interested in re-looking at the labor movement in Hawaii and trying to think about how labor was itself informed Um, by these land-based practices and how these land-based practices help us to better understand indigenous resurgence or Hawaiian resurgence in the form of lo'i kalo, like fish um, terra farms and and lo'i'o fish ponds and the ways in which like importing 85 to 90% of our food is itself a dangerous precedent and one simply needs needs to look at um, the situation in um, Puerto Rico after after Hurricane Maria and um, the ways in which Folks in Puerto Rico were describing that hurricane as as a teacher, right? Like that it actually taught people what they need to do in order to survive this new um, extreme weather patterns, and that we cannot rely these colonial places, occupied places cannot rely on on simply importing eighty five to ninety percent of our, all of our foods. That that these are dangerous dangerous um, conditions, and so I'm trying to look at um, you know something that I kind of developed at the end of, around slow violence or slow resistance and you know rob nixon's slow violence is like these forms of violence in terms of like toxicity or climate change that are not spectacle driven therefore you know they're not sort of on our minds and we don't sort of really wrap our minds or and open our hearts to the to the conditions of climate climate change and if that's what what slow slow is and like what does slow resistance look like and I I think slow resistance in Hawaii looks like growing your own food and and restoring fish ponds um, and establishing these these alternative infrastructures that will actually give us um, alternatives to capitalism at the same time that it gives us joy in terms of the actual work and doing that work together it it also ends up um, addressing issues like climate change and you know Vandana Shiva talks about how 40% 40% of all greenhouse gases contributing to climate change are caused by industrial agricultural models because, you know, people import food, Hawaii imports food 2,500 miles away and that contributes to climate change at the same time that it decreases the nutritional value of these foods at the same time that it ends up actually um, forcing people to buy their food as opposed to growing your own food. And so all of these different kinds of practices I'm kind of interested in, in looking at again and, and trying to think a little bit more about the radical possibility, um, those practices, and the ways in which it's kind of resurging on the ground. Um, but by, but doing so by by looking at history and the ways in which those practices are actually key to the militant labor movement. But if you read the history, you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know it.
1: That sounds really fascinating and possibly groundbreaking. I mean, I'm coming from the, the Trans-Pacific Studies, which I guess is my field, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like, uh-huh. One of our kind of constant obsessions is how does power work across you know empires and transnational contexts, um, but it's so much harder to deal with how resistance works in given that long purview, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. it's that's really really fascinating and um, motivates me to try and get more skills <laughs> for myself. <rest of laughs> um, yeah, and you kind of
0: do when you have kids, right? Like it's, it's kind of <laughs> exactly <laughs>
1: you realize how inept you are at so many things. <laughs> or yes. i do yeah <laughs> no i'm totally there with you um but we should end so i want to thank you so much for being on the show today and for sharing this magnificent uh book with us and for sharing so many stories with us it's it's very enlightening this might be one of the longest podcasts we have but i think it's going to be very worth it
0: uh, i appreciate that chris thanks so much for for your time